All right. Hey, thank you, worship team, once again. We're really grateful for you guys and all that you do um, for us. I want to thank uh, Pastor Joel for taking last week. Um, I was, uh, my wife and I were not here, family was not here, and uh, we're grateful to have um, times for, for breaks, and we're, we always look forward with greater enthusiasm coming back and kind of getting going. And so this morning we're beginning a new series. I'm excited about it and the implications of it for us. It's called The Seven, simply because we didn't know what else to call it, so we called it The Seven. And here's what we're doing with this thing. This is going to be essentially a, um, a seven-part series, isn't that surprising, that in which we're going to be using um, the, the leverage of the seven deadly sins, okay, to talk about sin's impact on our ability to create and maintain healthy relationships. In other words, sin, we believe, has created within us this desire for self-preservation, to stay closer to, to the vest, to keep things closer to the vest myself. And we believe that God has made us to have a close, personal, full of joy, full of life relationship, not only with him, but with one another. And so we're going to talk about the impact of sin in the course of our relationships, both with God and with other people. And I'll tell you what I want for you right away at the beginning. In this series, here's what I would love to have for you, that in your life, that you will begin to develop, if you haven't already, that you will begin to develop at least one relationship in your life where confession of sin is a normal part of what you talk about with at least one other person. That's my hope for you in this whole series, if you could wrap that up, that my hope is that you could have one relationship where confession of sin is as normal for you to talk about as the Phillies, the Sixers, the Eagles, Steelers, the weather, scrapbooking, hunting, fishing, whatever you enjoy doing, ing, that confessing becomes a normal part of what you do with at least one other person. Now, that being said, it's hard. Okay? It's very hard. We're going to talk about that and why that is, kind of the pushback to that in our series. So I'd like to begin this way, all right? I'd like to begin up here. I've begun up here before, um, and up here on this stage for us this morning is going to represent um, the, the creation account, the beginning um, of the Bible, Genesis 1. God creates. He makes the heavens and the earth, and he makes in the Garden of Eden. We're going to put the Garden of Eden up here. He makes man and woman, Adam and Eve. And if you know the story of creation at all, and even if you're not a church person, you probably know the general account of, of creation, um, uh, God creating animals and um, people and, and uh, the sky and trees and all that, that kind of stuff. So God creates Adam and Eve, and in the garden, he creates um, Adam and Eve for one another in, in perfection. And in Genesis 1, and 27, he makes a statement there. Oh, thank you. I won't be up here long, but thanks for the lights. Um, he makes a statement there that I want to pull out because it helps us answer this question. This question up here is what makes us human? Uh, we're kind of starting at a philosophical level, but we need to, I believe, to understand the impact of sin in our relationships. If we were to ask the question, what is the essence of humanity or what really makes you human? It's not so much that you look like me in the sense that we have arms and, and legs and a face, two eyes, two ears, whatever. The physical makeup is not primarily it, nor either is is it our will or our volition or what, what have you that we can speak and, you know, dogs can't and that makes us different? No. What does it really mean to be human? If you could boil it down to what is the essence of humanity, I believe you go back to the garden, go back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and you see in there that God says, makes this kind of statement, that in our image let us create them. Let us make 
men and women, let us make them in our image. And in the garden, we see this principle, I believe, that the essence of humanity is God's image in us and not sin's mark on us. This is so important because here's the thing. If the essence of humanity is God's image in us, not sin's mark on us, it changes how you see your reality. Because here's what you and I experience. Ever since the fall of man, ever since we come down as a human race from the ideal created Garden of Eden where God has made us in his image, when Adam falls and Eve falls into sin, sin marks us. And you were born into a world, and I was born into a world where all that I know and all that you know is sin. That's it. We can't even imagine a world like the garden anymore. We live down here. And we, are, we tend to think, what is the essence of humanity? A core part of who I am is a sinner. Wrong. The essence of your humanity is not defined by your sinfulness, but by your image-bearing. So the question is this, is, was Adam a human before he fell? Yes. Was Jesus fully human? Yes. In other words, God's image, not sin's mark on us, is the core reality of what it means to be human. Therefore, and here's why this is even more important, that whenever we experience sin, we experience less of what it means to be human. Sin makes us less than human, not human. Okay? Therefore, okay, here's what happens. When we have this reality, we live in this world down here, even though we were made for the garden, we live in a world down here where sin is our norm, and here's what we do. We then redefine our experience. We wake up in the, the morning, and we, we look out on our work and our family, and we say, man, everybody's falling. Man, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody's doing this, and what more can I expect? I mean, yeah, I'm going to struggle with lust. I'm going to struggle with greed. I'm going to struggle with my pride, and, but you know what? Quite honestly, everybody does it. It's normal. And we begin to redefine our experience and think somehow it's normal that we should experience sin. It's normal. It's what we were made for. I mean, who else knows any different? We live in a world that is sin-cursed, sin-filled, and this is what we do. And then we redefine and we just look around and say, everybody's in it. And so this is, must be what we're made for. And we redefine our experience. And then we redefine our language that we use to talk about our experience. Because we all feel relatively guilty when it comes to sin. We all know that none of us are as good as we portray. We begin to use different words for sin like mistakes, oversights, overlooking, a flaw, misjudgment. We begin to use other words to talk about sin because we know that the garden is just out of reach. No one lives there anymore. And so we change our language to kind of adapt to our experience that we have now, and we begin to create a problem. And here's what happens. When we redefine our experience, we redefine our language, this leads to basically this reality that we have just redefined creation. And we redefine creation. We think this is what we were made for. We were made for this down here. And we lower our expectations of what it means to be human. All the while, the reality is we were made for more than what we're experiencing right now. We were made for the garden. We were made for creation. 
Let me say this as well. When we redefine our experience and redefine our language, we live in a world right now, a postmodern world, in which the one word that I've used so far this morning, it is, it is bad form. It is bad form to talk about sin in this culture, isn't it? It is bad form to talk about the word sin. Because if you're talking about sin, you're talking about someone who has the ability to stand in an authoritative position and say, this is wrong. That is right. Don't and do. And who has that authority to do that? And then who has the authority to say that's sin when you don't? We live in a world of of tolerance. The word tolerance is bandied around like it's the highest value in our culture right now. Both Mark Driscoll in his movement, uh, the Resurgence Resurgence Movement, as well as D.A. Carson, he wrote a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And here's, here's the, the essential reality of what we see right now. Okay, now parents, um, if you have uh, kids who are in um, college age or, or beyond or certainly below that, um, your kids will experience this. In fact, they are growing up with this intuitively. They just don't even, they can't think of a world where, this, where tolerance is not a part of reality. But here's the problem with it, is that when we use the word tolerance, there's two kinds of tolerances. There's an old tolerance, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this over here. There's an old tolerance that will say, take this as representing something called an absolute truth. An old tolerance, tolerance previous to where we're at now, says, there is something called the absolute truth. This is a water bottle. I may view it this way, and you may view it differently. And I'm going to engage you with it. I'm going to tolerate your view of that for the purpose of trying to understand a better, get a better grasp of what actually is true in the universe. And so I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to engage you in dialogue. We may disagree. But at the end of the day, we believe that we will have gotten closer to understanding absolute truth, closer to understanding something is right. The new tolerance does this. It takes away absolute truth. Takes it away. There's a void of authority. In other words, homosexuality, gay marriage, come on, is there really a right or wrong? What are you, intolerant? The new tolerance does not want to engage in dialogue because what is the point? If I were to talk to you about my views of homosexuality or gay marriage, the only thing that we gain is an argument because nothing more can be known. There is no authority outside of my view or your view. And so why would I want to engage you because all I will end up with is prejudice against you or a conflict between us. Therefore, let's just be tolerant, not only of the person, but of the view and of the quote-unquote truth. And so what we're saying is, hey, well, there still is such a thing as an absolute truth. There still is such a thing as sin, and it is bad form in a world of tolerance to talk about right and wrong. And if you are, if you are in your 20s or younger, this is what you are going to wrestle with. This is a part of your worldview. You just can't help it. You're, you're raised this way. Uh, if you're older than that, you're just saying, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, D.A. Carson and his Intolerance of tolerance says basically tolerance has become uh, one of the highest values in the Western world today. He said not unlike motherhood and apple pie were in the early 1950s. Remember those days? I don't, but some of you do. Remember those days? 
That idea that tolerance has now become just as a normal part of what we do as motherhood and apple pie in the early 50s was. Just part of the deal. So here we are now in, in a world in which we say, we believe, I believe, there still is truth to be known and, and falsehood to be known. And we, we can redefine. We can redefine our experience. We can redefine our language. And in the process, we can redefine our own existence and our own creation before one another. And, and here's, here's the problem that results from that, basically, is when we um, have an experience, uh, if you will, in which we understand that there is sin in the world, that there are problems that exist between us and God, it gets in the way of our relationships with one another. When we redefine our experience and redefine our language to tolerate everything and everybody, um, we have come to live in a world that is different from how we were designed. So you and I can walk into a building like this, into a church facility, a church building, and we can experience a certain level of community life where there are normal conversations that you will have with people around you after church is over, but there are other conversations that you will not have with people after church because you're not comfortable with it. Why not? Because sin has come in and placed a wedge between you and what you were made for. So if you don't quite believe me yet or not quite sure how the impact of sin lands in all of us, let me ask you this question. What is one thing? What's the one thing that you could never talk about in church? What's the one thing that you can't talk about in church? You can talk about it on the weekends, maybe. You've thought about it. But man, if anybody knew that I... Can't talk about that here. See, if you're a living, breathing human being, you already have probably four or five things rolling through your mind, like, oh, I can't talk about that. Can you imagine if I brought that up in my Sunday school, my 9 o'clock thing? What would that? Can you imagine if I just raised my hand? Will you pray for me because I'm struggling with? Like, whoa, you can't. can't. So, so what is one thing? So here's the thing. Things roll through your mind. What does that tell you? That tells you there are things about you that you are trying to preserve keep close to you because sin has impacted us and it impacts our ability to relate to one another. Okay? It impacts our ability to relate to one another. And that reality is what we're going to try to explore as we go through this series called The Seven, the impact of sin on our relationships, the fact that we redefine creation to be what we experience right now. Okay? Um, the seven deadly sins, you should know, there is no Bible verse that says, and these are the seven deadly sins. Okay? Um, seven deadly sins were created, essentially, um, many attributed to different people. Gregory the Great in the 6th century is one of the most common, uh, commonly attributed to compilers of this kind of list. The idea behind this is not so much that these sins will kill you, okay, just so you know, to be clear, uh, but rather that these represent a broad swath of sinfulness. You will find yourself in these uh, talks and these messages if you're um, listening at all. Um, and you will probably find a twinge of guilt somewhere along the line. My hope is not to leave you there, but to take you past that um, with me, okay? So the first one we're looking at is this issue of pride. And I want to explain what it means first, because it's very important to do that. Pride, I'm not talking about being proud of your work, being, um, you know, that, that kind of, uh, I'm really, you know, glad for the work I do. I really take pride in that. That's a healthy kind of thing. What I'm talking about, and there's so many definitions, but my simple definition for this morning is simply this. Uh, living without regard for God. Okay. Pride. Living without regard for God. 
that, in other words, in every area of my, in any area of my life, if I'm living without regard for God, I'm living in that moment of pride. In my relationship with my, my wife, my husband, my dating relationship, the way I see my health, the way I see my money, the way I see my future, the way I see any decisions that I'm making related to schooling or whatever, if I'm living in that moment, making decisions in that moment without regard for God, I have very possibly stepped into a moment of pride. Now, let me be clear on this. Is I, wish, I wish that I could, in a loving way, loving Christian pastoral kind of way, I wish that I could take some of you and, and grab you by the ankles, hold you upside down and shake something out of you. Wouldn't that be fun? I did that one time. Did I tell you that? I did that one time with my, uh, my brother-in-law. I wasn't going to tell you this story, but I, I, I will real quick. Um, Jen and I were dating. It was like 100 years ago when we started dating. And, and uh, you know, the, her, her brothers, they were younger. They came. Um, I was a student at Lancaster Bible College. They came along for a, a date night. I don't know why they were there on a date. But anyway, that was kind of funny. They were much younger than her. And um, the one brother came up to my, um, to my dorm room and he's like, hey, this is awesome. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, look around. And he ends up, without me knowing it, you know, grabbing a Jolly Rancher. I don't even know if it was mine or my roommates, and he, he was sucking on it. And uh, we start walking down the steps, and um, in a few minutes, he's like, <coughs> you know, convulsing halfway in the, in the dorm. I'm like, oh, great, you know, go out with the girl, kill the brother-in-law. I mean, that's a, kill the guy. I mean, that just didn't seem to work. So I said, hey, hey, whoa, what's going on? And Jen was like, hey, um, well, he can't have hard candy. Good. Good. Thanks for the heads up on that one. Um, so I'm like, well, what do you do? I mean, you know, it's starting to turn blue. Yeah, hey, yeah. Well, what is, well, what is, my dad just takes here. What does he do? Well, he picks him up by the ankles and shakes it out. And so sure enough, there I am. I pick him up by the ankles and I'm holding him in the foyer. And like, like, get it out, get it out. And seriously, I'm, I'm telling the truth. And it, it came out. And, and then we all survived and he just hopped up and we went off and had pizza. It was kind of neat. So... I tell you that story, I have no idea why. Oh, because if I could, if I could pick us up by the ankles and shake this out of us, here's what I would want to shake out. That feeling that somehow pride and ambition are the same thing. If I could shake that out of you, I would. Pride and ambition are not the same thing. Pride and ambition are so, are so far apart. I... Pride is saying, I'm going to live my life without regard for God. Ambition is saying, I'm going to live my life on fire with a dream, on purpose, thinking big things for God's glory, for his purposes, not mine. And there is a world of difference between the two. Humility is not this passivity, is not weakness, is not not planning, is not being quiet and falling off in the background. That is not humility. I wish I could shake that out of us. That has nothing to do with humility. Humility has to do with living my life on purpose for the glory of God. Not for my sake, not for my goals, but for his. Okay? If I could shake that out, I would. Yeah, right? Pride is not about, oh, if I don't want to be proud, I'm just going to let someone else lead. Oh, they need help with that? Well, I hope they get help with that. They need a plan for life? I hope they... No. Come on, come on, come on, come on. It's about living your life with a passion, with a purpose, with clarity. For the glory of God, not for yourself. So pride, living without regard for God. Okay? Mini-sermon inside a sermon now over. Okay? Uh, with that being said, I want to go to a place in the scriptures that gives us an overview, a picture of perhaps um, one of the best 
um, realities of how we see pride happening within the lives of people in, in the scriptures. This story is one that you may or may not have thought of right away, but to me, uh, I think it represents um, so clearly what pride does to us. And in fact, this man that we're going to look at this morning, I need to tell you right now, this man was more successful than you will ever be. Okay, I'm taking a little risk in saying that, but after we see who this man was, I think you'll probably agree that no matter how successful you think you will become, I, I bet that he will be more successful than you and more than me. Now, we can define success later on, but you'll, you'll see where I'm going. And this guy, at first, you would say, wasn't even a follower of God. At first, he wasn't even anyone who had acknowledged the God of the Bible. He was just a wise, driven, organized, planned, purposeful kind of a guy. All right? We're talking about a guy who was a king, king of the most powerful nation at the time of the writing. And so, in a way, it's kind of like looking at the leader of the most powerful nation on earth now and saying, wow, what would it take to be someone like that? We're going to go to a little book in your Bible, the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is an Old Testament a prophet book. And so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Daniel. If you don't have a, a Bible with you, there's one in the pew near you. You can turn to the book of Daniel there. And um, we can, that, the Bible, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is our gift to you. Daniel, because you probably haven't been in Daniel for the last, whatever, six months, a year, two years, or, or ever, it's in the kind of the last third of your Bible. If you go to Psalms, kind of in the middle, keep going Proverbs, you'll end up seeing somewhere along the line Isaiah. Then you remember oh, I had a brother named Isaiah, and where did Isaiah go? And then you'll come back to us here in Jeremiah, and then you get to Ezekiel, and then you will land in the little book of Daniel, okay? In Daniel chapter 4, Daniel is a very godly man. He, Daniel is a man who um, is very honoring to God in his life and his passions and his prayers and his commitments and all that. Daniel is taken um, prisoner by the nation of Babylon at the time, very powerful nation, the most powerful nation on earth at the time. And the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is the man we're going to talk about this morning. And Nebuchadnezzar uh, decides to write a letter to his people. And essentially, Daniel chapter 4 is that letter that this very powerful man, very, very powerful man, writes to his people. Okay? And I'm going to read a lot of it because it's good, uh, and it tells the story, and it's a really neat story, good story. All right, so Daniel chapter 4, beginning at verse 4, I'm reading from the New International uh, Version, uh, and here, here's how it reads. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Good start. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. Anybody ever been there, by the way? Whoa, you wake up in the morning like, what kind of dream was that, right? I mean, we've had that in our home here recently. I don't know what causes that, but uh, I think we've all had those kind of nightmares. Verse 6, so I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. And in parentheses here, notice what it says in your Bible. He's called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Isn't that interesting? You talk about kind of arrogant. I'm going to rename you. This king was so powerful, he just renames people. Like, I don't, I, your name isn't good. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a different name. I don't, Daniel's not good enough. I'm going to name you one of my gods. Hey, bring in Belteshazzar. So he comes on in in verse, verse uh, 9. I said, hey, Belteshazzar. Chief of the magicians, 
I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and uh, you know, no mystery is too difficult for you. So here's my dream. Interpret it for me. That's good fun. You ever have your husband or wife do that in the morning? Like, hey, can you tell me what this means? There was you know, three unicorns on top of a fire hydrant. They were eating bologna sandwiches. And, like, what are you talking about? Okay. Verse 10, these are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top, top touched the sky. It was visible to all the ends of the earth. Its leaves are beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Verse 17. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Pause. Wow. You talk about an awkward moment. You ever have your, your wife say, does this dress make me look fat? Oh, the phone's ringing. i got to get that. I mean, there's just not a good way around that at all, right? In a way, you ever, have, you ever have a boss say, you know what, I want your opinion? No, seriously. And you know what you're thinking, like, I wouldn't even have you be my boss. That's my opinion. But you can't say that, right, because that's not going to work, okay? And this is one of those moments because Daniel, Belteshazzar, whatever you want to call him, Daniel is at any whim of 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 Nebuchadnezzar. He's already changed his identity. I mean, good grief. This is a, the most powerful man in the known world at the time. He's like, hey, Daniel, tell me what you think. And see, Daniel now, verse 19, he's greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. And so the king is like, hey, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. <laughs> right. See, Daniel already knows what it means. Daniel already realizes what this is about. And he knows, if I tell this guy the truth, like, I might be toast. I mean, literally, I, I might literally be toasted. You know, he's, we already got this whole thing with the fiery furnace. Like, I mean, he might, he's, he's kind of that guy. I mean, I, it just might be over. So what do you do? You have the most powerful man in the world asking you, hey, tell me. And you know the truth. And here's what Daniel does. Here we go. Belteshazzar answered him, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong, and your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Now, I don't know what your success plan is. I don't know what your vision is for your business or for your family. I, I would bet that if this were said about you later on in your life, you wouldn't mind it. 
Oh, his dominion extended to distant parts of the earth. Right. I mean, my dominion extends to, like, my house. I mean, that's, that's the end of it, and not even that sometimes, right? Verse 23. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. And this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and live with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone that he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins, not mistakes, not oversights, not misjudgments. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Another pause. And then Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, thank you. For your profound advice, I plan to do exactly what you said because I trust you. No, in fact, we don't know what he said, but we do know that he didn't do whatever Daniel advised him to do. A year passes. And if you can watch a movie and see the little subtitle show up, a year later, a year later, and here's where we are, a year later, verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, isn't that amazing? Daniel kind of said it would. Twelve months later, as the king was walking around on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. And this is what was decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and you'll live with the wild animals and you'll eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone that he wishes. And immediately what had happened, what, what had been said about King Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird, which is kind of gross. Um, some of you moms already think about how you want to trim your son's nails when they get long. All right, I mean, this is, this is really kind of gross, really long fingernails, the king. Can you imagine if this were to happen to the leader of the most powerful nation on the earth right now? I mean, to be honest, this is a dumb idea. If you're going to write a book that isn't real, it isn't true, just a bunch of myth, you don't want to do this to someone as well-known as Nebuchadnezzar because people are going to check on the facts of this and say, did this really happen? I mean, come on, you can do that to a, maybe a guy who owns a small business or maybe even a, a, a chain of restaurants in Babylon, and he's really wealthy. I mean, you can do that to him because people are going to forget about him, but really the king of Babylon... You're telling me that the king of Babylon, the most powerful man in the known world at the time, went wacko, went out and ate grass and fingernails grew long and went crazy. Yeah. We have the support that this actually happened. That this actually happened. This actually is not just a story somewhere that this actually happened. And here's what happens at the end. At the end of that time, verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. 
and my sanity was restored, and I praised the Most High, honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, check this out, verse 37. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And then he finishes with this incredible statement at the end. And those who walk in pride... He is able to, what? Humble. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And here's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I think. Get a hold of pride before pride gets a hold of you. Get a hold of pride before pride gets a hold of you. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar had a warning, and for a year he did nothing about it. And then, boom, here it comes. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar's heart and mind turn back and say, well, there is a king who is greater than me. There is someone whose reach and vision and power goes beyond anything I can ever imagine. And here's what he's saying at the end. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. No matter how strong you think you are, how wise your financial plan is, how savvy you think you are in relationships, how good-looking you think you are, how fast you think you are, how strong you think you are, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The message is simple. Get a hold of pride before it gets a hold of you. And there's a problem with pride, and that is it's very, 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 very difficult to see in us, isn't it? It's easy to see in you, and you can see it in me. But I can rarely see it in me, and you can rarely see it in you. Dan Boone wrote this about pride. He said this, It's easy to see in others, hard to see in the mirror. Others are egotistical, we're self-confident. Others are vain, we're well-dressed. Others are arrogant, we're just right. Others are demanding, we're pursuing excellence. Others are snobbish, we're introverted. Others conceited, we're secure. Isn't this how it works? Come on now, isn't this how it works? See, I don't think any of you would disagree with this idea that we have to get a hold of pride before it gets a hold of us. I don't think any of you would disagree. I mean, that's, that's even a good idea, even if you don't believe in God or the Bible or anything like that. That's just even a good idea in general. Okay? But here's the problem for all of us. It's just so hard to see. It's just so hard to see. Because if I were living in pride, I would know it. No, I wouldn't. Even with a warning, King Nebuchadnezzar, the wisest, whatever, smartest, strongest, most powerful, influential man, didn't see it. So hard to see. So hard to see. And so what do I do? What do I do? Let me suggest this. The only thing that, that I think we can do, and I don't even know if this is going to totally work for us, but I think it's the start. Okay? The only thing that I think we can do, because it, it's so difficult to see. There's some sins that only I see in me. We'll talk about them. Things like envy. You don't know when I'm being envious. Lust, you don't know when I'm lusting. But pride, I don't know when I'm being prideful, but you do. I need, I need people around me. You need people around you 
whom you can ask this question to. Where in my life do you see me living without regard for God? Where in my life do you see me living without regard for God? And so let me say this. So so what? You need to embrace, we need to embrace, I need to embrace the humility that comes with evaluation. In other words, I need to ask the people around me, where in my life do you see me living without regard for God? Isn't this what Nebuchadnezzar ended up with, even though he may not have known he was inviting it? He was inviting an interpretation of his dream and ended up coming as Daniel saying, man, you are, you are a prideful, arrogant king. My advice to you is to turn from that. Thanks, Daniel. See you in a year. He didn't do it. So for you and me, here's what that means. You're, you're a business owner. When's the last time you've talked to your employees below you and heard real feedback from them as to how you're doing in leading your company? You may say, well, they don't get paid what I get paid to make the decisions. I understand that. There's nothing to do with payment. There's nothing to do with pay scale. It has to do with the fact that there are people around you in your business who can see things in you that you simply can't see. And you need them. You need them to tell you, where am I living? In a selfish, self-centered way. When's the last time, husband and wife, you said, man, would you tell me, honey, where do you see me living without regard for God? When's the last time that you've said to, to, to one of your, your friends in school, hey, we're, you know, I'm thinking about school decisions, I'm thinking about dating decisions, and I just don't know. Where, do you see any areas right now where I'm making decisions, I'm thinking about things like that, without really conceiving of what would God want for my life? Living without regard for God. Now, here's the problem with that. Because we don't do it very much, the person that you ask, the insight that you try to get, they'll feel like Daniel. Like, well, I don't, can I tell you the truth? Can you imagine that if you're the boss and you have never before asked, or you're, a, you're a, a husband who tries to be pretty dominant, you're a wife who's really kind of been closed up and, and held things close to the, to the vest, and all of a sudden you come out of the blue and you're like, hey, would you tell me, is there any pride in my life? Hmm? And I asked the question, they didn't say anything. So we need, to, we need, in tandem with that question, we need to create this environment. We need to kind of embolden evaluators by assurance, okay? And this is what, this is what Nebuchadnezzar did to Daniel. He's like, Daniel, I can tell you're nervous. You're, I can tell the look on your face. You know something, and you're afraid to tell me. Give it to me. And we need to create the environment in our workplaces, in our homes, within our friends, where we actually can make them believe I'm not going to crucify you for telling me the truth because you need this, and I need this. I need people, and you need people who will help me see where I am living without regard for God. Because here's the thing. Let me ask this question with you. What's at stake if I don't? Think about it this way. What's at stake if you don't? All right, good message, fair enough. I like the point. Yep, get a hold of pride before it gets a hold of you. Sounds good. I can put that on a bookmark or refrigerator magnet and go on with my life and everything's good. But listen, what's at stake if I don't do this? And here's what the brother of Jesus has to say about this. James in the New Testament writes this verse, really profound, simple verse that that has come to mind for some of you perhaps already in James chapter 4. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let me ask you, is this life hard enough without God working against you? 
I mean, isn't life hard enough living in this sinful world instead of in the created place we were meant to be? Isn't life hard enough dealing with the sin that we have to deal with, let alone dealing with God who opposes the proud? Isn't life hard enough without living in pride? So what if I don't? What if I don't? You ever feel like, man, it's just, I'm just not getting through. I'm not getting through. I'm not getting in the next level of my relationship or, or um, in, in my business. I'm not getting through next level of my finances. Not that we're talking about making more money, but in terms of my awareness of how God wants to use my life and leverage my life for his glory. I'm just not getting there. What if God opposes the proud? And what if one of those reasons that we're not continuing to move in our, in our fullness of joy with God and one another that we were made for is because we have somehow living in here, we said, this is normal. It is normal not to ask evaluation. It is normal not to ask people to, 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 to evaluate my pride and my living in, in my own arrogance. It's normal not to do that because this is what everybody does. James reminds us, hey, if you want a harder life than what already exists... Here's a reminder. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So husbands, why would you not ask this question with your wife? Wives, why would you not ask this question to your husbands? Where do you see in my life any area where I'm living without regard for God? Why would we not ask that question? Students, why would you not ask that question? Why would we be afraid of what we will hear. Why would we not want the evaluation, the wounds, if you will, from a friend can be trusted? The story of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, reminds us of this reality. We've got to get a hold of pride before it gets a hold of us. And it's just so hard to see that I need you, and you need me. And I need to create the environment where I'm willing to ask you, come on, where am I living without regard for God? And I need to remind you, it's going to be okay. I will not crucify you for this, but I need you. Because you know what? We were made for more. We were made for more than simply coexisting together. We were made for more. We were made for an openness, a fullness of joy that will come as we're willing to deal with the, th the things in our life, the sin in our life that creates distance between us. And pride is one of the first of the seven that we need to deal with. Get a hold of pride before it gets a hold of you. It's pretty good. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you, that you give grace to the humble. We're also grateful that you oppose the proud because otherwise we just kind of keep launching headlong into the pursuit of our own dreams without regard for you. And so I pray for those of us this morning who are experiencing some real hard times. Some of that is just normal life and difficult situations, but perhaps some of this is the reality of James 4. That you're standing in the way and trying to remind us, listen, Life is not about you. Don't live without regard for me. The reason you're having a hard time in this relationship, 
is because you haven't allowed me to be the God of your life here. The reason you keep running out of money is because you haven't allowed me to be the God of your financial life. The reason you keep having these relationship problems is because you haven't allowed me to be the God there. The reason you're not as intimate with your spouse as you would like to be is because you haven't allowed me to be the God there. Father, we know that we make lousy gods. So I pray that you would give us the courage this morning to step into the conversations that we need to have, to ask the questions and to create the environment around us where people can speak into our lives without fear of retribution, to speak truthfully, carefully, and clearly to us. We need you, Father. We need you, we need you, we need you to bring clarity to our lives, to return us to even just a sense of how we were made for full-on joy and life as your creatures, living in openness with one another. Give us courage to do what we know we need to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.